Welcome, everyone, to the All Season Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. His name is Russ Rausch, and he is one of the co-founders of Vision Pursue. Vision Pursue is a very unique and innovative company that focuses on creating a performance mindset within any organization by addressing life experience. This podcast is also supported by Strength.com, the official protein for USA Wrestling. I like to consume the best ingredients, and Strength.com provides the best grass-fed protein for anyone looking to gain muscle or add protein to their diet. It is also NSF certified, which means it is the highest quality in supplements and is certified for sport. It also tastes fantastic. So, use my promo code ALLSEASON25 for 25% off any purchase. I'm here with Russ Rausch. Uh, hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. One of the co-founders of uh, Vision Pursue. So glad to have you here. Really excited to talk with you. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Sonny. Excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to start off by you know maybe catching the audience with a little bit about your background. Um, I know that you went from a trading company to creating this mental performance company. What was what was your why? Um, can you can you fill us in on that? Yeah. So in my early forties, I was in the trading and technology industries, uh, and specifically, I was the chief operating officer at a hedge fund. And what I found was I was having some relative success in my life compared to what I thought I would have. I'm a small town kid from Kansas, first one to go to college in my family. Here I am in Chicago. I have a pretty good job and have done some pretty cool things but feeling pretty dissatisfied, I guess, with my life, just the way I felt about it, you know, having trouble sleeping and just not being happy about what I was doing. And, and so I started thinking, you know, why is this? I don't have any big reasons why I'm not happy. Of course, we all have a lot of small reasons why we're not happy. So it came down to that. And I started thinking, you know, what's going to change? You know, yeah, I could get a better job and make more money, but that's never worked. And so what's really going to change here? And I started looking into neuroscience and how the brain works, thought and emotion. And when I started to go down that trail, I started to find a lot of answers to how, why I was experiencing life the way I was. So that became a major passion of mine, just a weekend passion of reading books and watching videos and learning from these neuroscientists and psychologists about how the brain works and how you can change the brain. And so that started to really impact the way I felt about my life. And I started to see, hey, the answer isn't out there somewhere, which is where I always thought it was. It's actually in here. And it wasn't just some general thing like be positive or connect to your why. It was real brain science. And so I really got attracted to that. It was, became a passion, like I said. And then at some point, I started codifying and organizing everything I was learning and put together a program. And then it morphed over a few years into a business. Russ, I feel like um, in modern... Uh, culture and society, we glamorize the idea of abandoning whatever occupation you have to to just seek out something that's going to make you so much more happier, right? And it's sometimes maybe, you know, we should just alter the way we think about our current experiences rather than trying to seek some sort of alternative 
uh, dream job type of way. What are your What are your thoughts about on this? I think that's exactly correct. You know, one of the things I hear a lot because what I'm doing now, I'm more or less running my own business. Yeah, I have partners, but I have my own business. I'm quote unquote, helping people. I'm working with some sports teams and stuff that people think is really cool. And it is cool. And people think, wow, you're lucky. This is making you happy doing all this. Right. And the reality is that happiness has very little to do with those things. And I could go back to my old life, my old job, and maybe be more happy because it would be easier. It's would it would be easier. I'd make more money. It would be easier. <laughs> so, what you really start to realize, and that's kind of what I was getting at the beginning. It's not what's happening out there. It's what's happening in here. And I think what you're saying is right. There's this narrative that you have to go find something you love, and if you can't do that and make money, that's causing more unhappiness than it's causing happiness, in my opinion. And the other side of that too, working with some pro athletes like I do with coaches, they are literally doing what they love for a living. They're succeeding at it, and they're helping other people. Mm-hmm. And you can go look online and see this video from Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, talking about how unhappy. NBA players. And I see that everywhere I go. Not that all pro athletes are unhappy, but it's just in general, people aren't having a great life experience. And it doesn't have so much to do with what's happening out here, but in here. So I think you're spot on. Yeah. And I think um, something really important that you said to me on our, our phone conversation before that stuck with me since is you said seeking a meaningful life comes with more unhappiness than happiness uh and i and i feel like that is not only true but something people don't realize i think i feel like we have like this weird um maybe misinterpretation of happiness and that is something that we should always be pursuing rather than something you already have and just need to find a better way to perceive that what do you think? I, I think that's exactly right. You know, one of the really, the, the things that influenced me early on, a lot of people have seen it, but there's a TED Talk by Joe Bolte Taylor called My Stroke of Insight. Neuroscientist at the age of 37, she's a Harvard neuroscientist, so a really driven, smart professional. And she wakes up at 37, she has a blood clot in the left hemisphere of her brain. It shuts down. So for about eight years, more or less, she's only has the right hemisphere. And it's a brain scientist, right? So she can talk about this. She totally heals. But when the bottom line of that whole experience is when the left side was disconnected, all these thoughts and emotions about the past and the future and who am I and what am I trying to do and all of that connection to the external world, which is very important, by the way, but she didn't have that. And what she felt was peace and Mm -hmm. nirvana and connection. I'm part of something bigger and greater. And of course, that had nothing to do with the external world. In fact, her external world was kind of shot. She couldn't be a brain scientist. She, you know, she couldn't operate like she could in the external world. And yet her internal world, her internal state was great. So what does that tell you? It tells you it's internal, not external. Not that the external doesn't matter. But when we think that it's out there and we're searching out there, it's like searching for anything. If you're looking in the wrong place, you're not going to find it. Mm. Yeah. And. Yeah, that's 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 pretty spot on. And there's always been a lot of research about gratitude and how that can change so much about how you just perceive your your average day. Um, so I know that you know Vision Pursue is really centered on the idea of how we experience our daily lives. Can you can you go a little bit more on that? 
Yeah, a lot of psychologists, you know, one of the things I do when I train people, I'll tell them, you know, I'll start out by saying, stop thinking. And they can't, we can't do that, right? We're not made to stop thinking. And so right. what I'm introducing them to is they're part of their automatic brain that creates thought. And of course, emotion, nobody picks their emotion, the brain picks the emotion for you. So that automatic brain function, think about how powerful that is. If I can't stop thinking, and I can't change my emotions, and my emotions, of course, are based on my thinking patterns, that creates my life experience. Hmm. And so where do we start this out? I, f- I forgot where we started that question out at. Sorry. <laughs> Just like how you would frame how we experience our daily lives. I know looking at the website, you categorize how we experience our, our daily lives, right? Yeah, Into- so that's, yeah, so you got me back on track there. So yeah, <laughs> these automatic thoughts and emotion, then that's going to cause your experience of life. Mm-hmm. And people have often saw, seen there's this picture of a person walking in the park with their dog. And the dog's, it has a brain bubble for the dog and the dog's looking at the park, experiencing the park and the beautiful day. And the person's experiencing all these thoughts about the past and the future and everything else. And so right. what, that, what that means is these thoughts and emotion are, are creating our life experience. And so we've surveyed about 4,000, it's been over 4,000 people at this point. And we ask them, what is a typical day feel like? And we break it into four categories. So we force them to, to fill 100% into these four. First one is how much is stressful and annoying. Second one is how much is monotonous or boring. Third is how much are you doing escape activities? When you basically say, I don't want to think anymore. I got to shut her down. I just want to have a drink, watch TV, social media. I just want to shut it off. And then the last one is I feel good without escape. And what the survey comes back, uh, average of everybody that's taken it, about 80% of a day is either stressful, annoying, monotonous, or people are escaping. So that's the overall average. Now, what's even maybe more interesting, Sonny, that says a lot, but it's even more interesting. It almost seems to be independent of what people are doing. And that I've trained a group of industrial occupational psychologists. I've done pro sports athletes. I've done high school students. I've done stay-at-home parents. And I've done hedge fund people. So you would think all of them would have different profiles because they're different sets of stressors. But it's not the case. Yeah, they're slightly different. So one group might end up 85% and the other one 78% mm-hmm. of those three categories. But those are small variations. And so that's all based on these thoughts and emotions that we're having automatically that our brain's creating. Right. And I find that really interesting because a lot of uh, maybe high-performance trainers will say the mental skills you train for athletes are definitely useful for people outside of sport because everyone is handling their own stress. Everyone is handling life to a certain same degree. Um, When I read that and saw your speech, I couldn't help but think um, maybe this is just me challenging for the sake of challenging every idea that I come across, (laughs) but it's doesn't stress monotony and escapism. Doesn't that kind of what make life tolerable isn't that the stability and routine that kind of comes with making life just like your normal life right so i feel like if i don't have the um the stress or monotony of a regular day that kind of makes my life maybe unstable maybe there's too much new stimuli am i just like going off the rails here (laughs) 
No, I don't think you are. I think it's exactly right. And we're not trying to eliminate it. All we're saying is 80% out of whack. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason why it's so out of whack, it's like, you know, this eight to one negativity ratio. I don't know if we talked about that yet, but psychologists talk about, we've all had the experience, something good and bad happens on the same day. Mm-hmm. What do you replay in your mind over and over? It's the bad. Right. right. And, and so, yeah, we're not trying to eliminate those three categories. You know, what's a healthy percent? I don't really know what it is, but it's not 80. It's probably close to 50 or 40. And it also is dependent on what you're doing and what you're going through. You know, yeah, what yeah. if we were six months into a pandemic with social unrest and forest <laughs> fires? And maybe, maybe that would look a little different. So we could get into that. But like to me, the stress emotion, all those things that we're talking about, I think you said it exactly right. I mean, they're just part of being a human being. If you didn't have those emotions, that wouldn't make any sense. I mean, if we went through the pandemic and the social unrest and these divisiveness in our country, and go, wow, I'm really happy about all that. That makes me really happy. You know, that doesn't make any sense. So right. the stress and all of that is, is we should be having that. In our, and I feel like our culture doesn't really make it easier to counter those negativity bias, confirmation bias of negative things. because news itself only portrays um, the most dangerous news events that should be coming to your awareness. So all those forest fires, pandemic, whatever those things are that may seem as negative, those are the things you remember because those are the things that push to you. And it's much harder to find the counter uh, counterfacts of those that are maybe more positive, right? Well, I think that's right. And I think the last six months are obviously maybe not the best uh, thing to look at because it is really extraordinary, you know, for my lifetime being in this country anyway, people in other countries have went through way worse than what we're going through uh, in my lifetime. But yeah, it's, it's extraordinary, I would say, but just generally in life, that's the crazy thing about this. You would think these pie charts that I'm talking about how much, what your day looks like would really change in the pandemic. Yeah. They change a little, not a lot. Mm -hmm. And so like, almost like throw all this stuff out. We've gone through the last six months because it's an aberration, I think, but the principles still apply. And what really, you know, we haven't gotten into really what starts to shift the brain. One of the things that shifts the brain is expecting difficulties and difficult emotions. Then the same thing that we're all dealing with, even before COVID-19, you have to expect these difficulties and these hard emotions and you can't cover them up and just say, I'm going to be positive all the time. We're going to have this wide array of emotions. There's great science and research about that we can get into if you want. But I agree with you completely. I mean, I find it really interesting that no matter what walk of life you're doing, there's a high statistic of you falling into those three categories. There has like, why do you think so? And like, like you said yourself, you could be living your dream occupation as a pro athlete, pro coach, whatever you wanted to do and still have that high rate of maybe unsatisfaction. Why do you think that is? I think it's this natural tendency of the brain to this eight to one negativity ratio. So if you're a pro athlete, believe me, I could come up with a lot of things that they're dealing with that they don't like. And if they're playing that eight to one negative to positive, their their life's going to feel like that. And the other thing, I think you touched on it, if not today before, the other thing is there's an illusion that when you get what you want, you're going to be happy. And I think the reason that is, is because that eight to one ratio, if you don't change your brain, you have the same brain. And so things are still bothering you, even though you're quote unquote on a higher plateau, you're making more money, people like you, 
you can get more of what you want. Uh, you see that over and over again. If you just look and talk to people who have succeeded, you'll see that, that they'll say there really is no correlation there. And so that's the other thing I think about a pro athlete. Can you imagine like doing everything they have to do to get to the top of the heap and live your dream and then go, wow, I feel the same way I felt before. I mean, that's almost like a triple whammy. And one of my good friends, even before VP, was a major league baseball player. It wasn't a good friend. He was just a friend, but a major league baseball player who won a World Series and hit a walk-off yeah. home run in a World Series and did all these great things and talked about when you get to the top of the hill and you're in your mid-30s and you realize this is high I'm, as I'm going to go and it doesn't feel that great, it's not a great feeling. Oof. Yeah, I mean... I can relate in the sense that, um, you know, I was just in grad school and when you're in grad school, the number one thing you really think about is getting a job in your occupation that you studied for, right? Those investments have to come in return. So when I did get the job and I doubled my income, like from a grad student to an employed person, like you don't take on any more debt. You're, you're kind of putting that all off. Um, I mean, paying it back, (laughs) excuse me. And Things are so much better tech on paper, yet if I had to rate the percentage of happiness for myself, I wouldn't say there was like a drastic increase. I wouldn't say I was jumping for joy every day by any means. It, it's weird. Um, and that's a good point. Like I feel like there's a statistic, right? There's above $70,000, the average person doesn't feel any difference in terms of related happiness. Um And maybe the number one solution people think for is maybe if I left everything behind and jumped into something that I really love to do, maybe that would be the answer for it all. And maybe that is something that we shouldn't be really preaching anymore. Listen, I feel like it's great. And maybe you're in a case of that, right? And maybe I'm a case of that. Like we're probably both doing things that we like to do. Like we like what our work, you know, I like what I'm doing now, but when I was the chief operating officer of a hedge fund, that was much more of a means to an end, right? I was, I didn't grow up dreaming about being a chief operating officer of a hedge fund. <laughs> and so there is something nice when you can line up what you're good at and what you like to do and you can make money at it. Of course, all I'm saying is that's not going to be transformational to your mind. In fact, you know, then we just tend to want more and more and more. And so it's nice when it happens, but then all of a sudden you're searching, searching, searching. You know, by the way, I think Siri just got activated. <laughs> Shut her up. Um, it's it's nice when you can line those things up, but it's just not the solution. And the reality is, you know, what are there? 350 million Americans, 7 billion people on the planet. I mean, are they all supposed to be doing what they love for a living? Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. You know, when I talk to high school students and I say, is there a, is there a theory out there? Is there, you have a belief that you need to find what you really love and what you're good at? And they'll go, yeah. And I go, how does that make you feel? And it makes them feel stressed out. Right. Instead of, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this too, because one of my favorite things I like to do in training is Martin Luther King's excerpt from one of his speeches. They call it the street sweeper, street, street sweeper. And, Martin Luther King gave this speech, a vocational speech at a junior high. Now think about this. And he's talking to junior high school students about vocation. What should you do when you grow up? And what he said was the street streeper speech, which is basically 
go out and sweep streets so well that the angels in heaven look down and go, there's a great street sweeper. And the point is, go do whatever it is that you happen to be doing as best you can, put love, energy, and power into what you're doing, and let that take you where it's going to take you, versus I need to get here to be happy. Mm. And so I work hard and I get there and then I need to get there to be happy. I need to get there to be happy. And then, you, you know, at some point you go like, none of this is working. And that's where I was in my early forties or mid forties. Like, okay, I've done everything they told me to do. And yeah, I, I'd like to be better than I am at what I'm doing, but I'm still doing pretty well. It's not working. Yeah. This always goes back to motivation, right? Are we going to be motivated by external rewards and punishment? Or are we going to be rewarded by, or motivated by the intrinsic value of who we identify as. Like, am I going to be process oriented? Am I going to just care about the journey and doing something that I do as best as I can? Or am I always seeking for the next rank? Am I seeking to the next hierarchy, whatever field that you're in? Um, and I forgot who said this, but, you know, someone was talking about being motivated in your job. And if you're always looking for the next best job, where is your loyalty? Um, and that kind of stuck with me for a little bit because I think most people think that way. And maybe there is some space where they should reevaluate that. Um, so, you know, in the past year or so in my job, I've been really more focused on doing what I do. Um as best as I can and being more patient with where I go next. Um, that being said, with Vision Pursue, how do you guys frame the idea of mindset? We frame it all around what we started with. You've got to get your automatic thoughts and emotions working for you instead of against you. And there are really three main things you can do to start to get this limbic automatic brain working for you instead of against you. One is get your expectations in line with reality. And that's a concept we call expect expected. And in this culture where we're kind of taught to be positive and think you're going to get what you want all the time, it causes a lot of disappointment because life's hard. And if you're doing something that's competitive and tough, like even just trying to be married or having a long-term romantic relationship <laughs> or having children or having any job, of course, there's going to be a ton of difficulties with that. And yet we sort of have this picture of like, don't settle and get the perfect person who's going to really fulfill you and get that job that fulfills you. You're looking for the world to fulfill you. Think about how narcissistic that is and how self-absorbed that is. I need everybody to make me happy and fulfill me. And so obviously that whole posture is negative and doesn't really work and it creates unhappiness. But we're sort of taught this is what we're supposed to do. Go out and get it. And it's a little bit like, don't be satisfied until you get it. So in other words, you're creating dissatisfaction. I can't be satisfied. And you're also creating this fear of failure. What if I can't get there? And so we get motivated by dissatisfaction and fear. So what's the consequence? You feel yeah. dissatisfied and afraid. And that's how most people feel. And they don't know how to change that. And I was the same way. And so the Jill Bolte-Taylor thing is why I like to talk about that because she felt all these amazing things. She felt good enough right now, regardless of what was happening out there. So you find it internally through this brain balance, and then you bring it to the world. So instead of I need to 
find somebody that's going to fulfill me or the job that's going to fulfill me. No, I'm going to, I already am fulfilled. I'm bringing that to my job. And then mm. obviously you can see the energy of that. And that's what Martin Luther King saying, go out and do your job really well. Contribute, connect, contribute, create, bring love and energy. And of course you're going to do well at it. And then of course more opportunities will come. You know, how could they not? And then you're going to rise to the level of your talent, which who knows what that is. We're not all the same talent level, but we're going to go somewhere. We're going to be successful and relatively happy. and We can have a good life, even if it isn't exactly what we thought we wanted. So that's yeah. how, when, going back to your question, like how do we instill mindset when working with companies and teams? That's where we try to get them. Yeah, managing expectations is super hard. Not only for me, but I think most people because we, it's like we celebrate competition, right? People love the last dance. People love when we portray hyper competitive people that are not willing to settle for any means necessary. So it's almost like always contrary to what we ought to be maybe thinking about sometimes. And um, I wish we did more things towards people where we don't expect people to be perfect. Um, that's why a lot of people have imposter syndrome, that they don't belong with a certain group of people because they're not as good as they are. Um, so, yeah, is is that one thing you guys focus on at VP is like, let's manage our idea of perfection? Yes. And when, when it comes to expectations, like, number one, don't expect everything to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Don't expect to be perfect because nobody can do that. And expect to have a lot of tough emotions. That's really important. And by the way, uh, some of the greatest coaches out there, you know, I think there are four that really stick out that have done, had incredible success for long periods of time, or maybe five, but certainly Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, John Wooden, and Phil Jackson, they all have this incredible focus on the process and expecting things to be difficult and hard and staying with that and doing the right things over and over and letting the outcomes come from that versus setting these great outcomes all the time and putting all your focus and energy, I got to get there. Yeah, they want to get there, but they're getting there by putting the focus on the process and expecting it to be hard. And so these expectations, yeah, I can expect that, hey, I'm going to do well over time, but it's a rocky road. I mean, if you're going to get good, you got you to go through failures and successes and that's a necessary part of it so you got to expect the difficulties while also expecting hey you know i'm going to get through it but i may not get it may not look exactly like i want it to look in the end because life just isn't like that yeah i mean there's a really good book i read about strategy where it says one thing people forget to account for is the unknown unknowns Right. So we have idea of what to expect. We have we have an idea about what could come, but we're not really sure about the outcome or the results of that. And then there's another part where it's like we don't even know what could come out, but just have a little bit of mental space in your head that says, hey, things could we don't really know what to expect here, but have some flexibility and whatever that does come. Um, yeah. And another part of your speech that I saw and uh, the information that you sent was being self-aware of your emotions and how to respond to them. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yeah, this really goes to the work that Dr. Kelly McGonigal at Stanford. I, I, it seems to me like she really started to get the word out on this work and research. And so I go back to her and that, and then Susan David. So one of my customers actually turned me into doctor, turned me on to Dr. Susan David at Harvard. The work that they reference and that they talk about and that they've done is all about that we're suppressing all these negative emotions, trying to be positive all the time. Stress is bad. All these negative emotions are bad. Be positive. Don't be disappointed. Uh, don't have imposter syndrome. Believe in yourself. Have confidence. <laughs> and uh, when you think about the silliness of all that, uh, and you see it all the time in sports, be confident. Believe in yourself. It's like saying, don't worry. You know, that's not an effective strategy. <laughs> and so to be what all the research leads you to the conclusion of is that these emotions that you're having, let's talk about imposter syndromes. You brought it up. I love that one. Everybody I know that I've talked to about it has it, including, including people that have won Super Bowls and NBA championships. Not that I know hundreds of people that have done that, but I know people that have done that. And so they've gone to the top of the heap and yet they still have it. And so what is that? It's automatic brain activity. Mm. And the way I interpret that is a competitor always wants to be better, even if they're already good. And so when you look at his imposter syndrome as the truth, I'm not good enough because I'm locked in. My, I'm, I'm not separated from my thought and emotion. I'm just living that. Then it's damaging. If instead I look at it as like, let's say you're my coach and you say, hey, Russ, what you're doing right VP is not good enough. You need to do better. And here's how you can get better. And if I accepted that and go, great, coach, tell me how to do it. Then that imposter syndrome, instead of wearing you down, actually lifts you up. And if you're my coach and I'm arguing with you and you're saying, hey, Russ, you're not good enough. You need to do these things better. And I go, no, you're wrong. I am good enough. You're going to quit coaching me or you're going to get mad, right? And you're going to get angry with me. If I don't know if this makes sense or not, but that's how I look at the brain. The brain's not trying to mess me up. It's trying to help me. So when it says I'm not good enough, I look at it like a coach who loves and respects me. I'm separate from it. I embrace it. And then you'll see it'll start to quiet down and I actually can learn from it. Because usually there are things, there's a reason your brain's activated is you're not quite good enough. You're not doing things quite good enough. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you need to improve. Yeah, I feel like um, our relationship with stress is very interesting sometimes. And I think you absolutely need stress to improve. Um, and I think if people are not really good at handling stress, they are also not really good at handling criticism or feedback from their supervisor, which just hinders their ability to handle more stress, right? Um they just get bogged down by all of those. So I, I think, yeah, that's a really good point. Like we need to be better at being able to have that relationship with stress and see that as the ability to grow rather than, you know, um, build the walls of our imposter syndrome per se. Well, take it a level down. What is stress? What is imposter syndrome? What is lack of confidence or anxiety, they're chemicals. They're neurotransmitters is what they are. So your brain's released chemicals to make you feel that way. And so what's the best way to deal with that neurotransmitter? It's to open up. Number one, expect that it's going to happen. If it didn't happen, like, again, if you just, if you never felt any fear or anxiety, if you didn't feel any fear or anxiety about COVID-19 in the world, what would be the result? Mm. 
So of course you're going to feel that. What if you didn't care about your performance? What if you didn't care if your kids were struggling? So you want those quote unquote tough emotions. You just see them for what they are. They're messages. They're temporary. They're neurotransmitters. And they're going to, they're going to leave. And so I open up and accept and embrace them, seeing for what they are, they pass through me quicker and I'm not, they don't consume me. And that's what happens to most people. They get consumed by them. And that's why people have a negative impression of them. Yeah. When, when you say pass through me, it's kind of like fear, right? Fear is not like a real thing. It's just like your, your brain chemistry. And often than not, when it passes through you, you realize you're, you're still there. And there wasn't that great of a uh, threat. threat. Yeah, that's that's the word. Yeah, I mean, fear's a great one. We always use the example of if you're walking on a trail in Arizona and there's a rattlesnake there or there's a puppy there, <laughs> should your brain respond the same to those two external stimulus? Mm. And, of course, the answer is no. You would want the fear so you avoid the rattlesnake, and then after that, you just want it to go away. You don't want to be afraid to walk on a trail ever again. And so you want the fear to come, give you the message, and leave. Mm. So if I feel I have fear about, hey, am I going to do well in this game tomorrow or on this test or on this presentation at work, that's not a bad thing. That's your brain motivating you. It's like you better get prepared. And if I can look at it that way and accept it, embrace it, what's it feel like to feel fear? Okay, great. And it will start to pass through me, and then I can go, well, I better – get to work on it, or I'm going to trust that I'm ready because I know I've done the work. But so now I'm not trapped in the fear. The fear is not hurting me. It's going to give me the message and go away. The reason it doesn't do that for us and it stays with us and it grows is because we're not separated from it. We're not embracing it. In fact, we're suppressing it or we're lost in it. Hmm. And that's what McGonagall and David's work really shows that when you open up to it, you see it for what it is and you embrace it, accept it it will start to pass through you. Yeah. And that kind of ties into the last part, which is you focus on, you know, control the controllables, which is the biggest motto in sports psychology ever, right? <laughs> control what you can and the outcomes are, you know, kind of out there. Uh, that's something you can't control, but your performance, right? That's, that's really within you. Um, yes. And, and I think when you, try, when you try to go straight to control the controllable, because like you said, everybody says that. Every coach says that. Every, everybody says that. But the question is, are people really doing that? Is mm. that what they're really focusing on? And my belief is it's really hard to do that if you don't expect the expected. In other words, get your expectations right and embrace your emotions. You're so caught up. Your limbic system is so activated and you're so full of emotion, you can't possibly focus on the controllable. And I always even like to ask the question to athletes and our coaches, can you control your performance? About 60% of them say they can. But, you know, that's not true. Because <laughs> if it was, everybody just kick ass all the time, all the right. way to the top. And so there's very few things that are controllable, and you really do have to surrender control and focus on those things we can control. But it's difficult to do when your limbic brain is so activated. I'm thinking somebody tweeted that about me or said that about me. And of course I can't control that. I should expect it. And I can't control it yet. I'm going to go off and really spend a lot of mental energy there because my brain is leading me down that path. Yeah. And a really big point that you talked about was humility in order to discover your blind spots. Um, can you elaborate on that for a second? 
when you think about how, how our brain grows over time, the analytical brain, as we're growing up and we're having these experiences, the brain experiences all these different things. And of course, it's memorized, memorizing all that. And it's trying to come up with, okay, what's right or wrong? What should I do? Make sense of everything, which makes sense. The problem is my experience or your experience is very limited. Right. So we don't have the whole picture, but we really think our picture is right because we experienced it. That's the way the brain works. So we tend to think we're right about things. And the other thing that's really natural is to feel defensive. You talked about people not accepting feedback. Well, I don't know anybody who doesn't feel defensive when they get criticized. And so the two things about humility, then humility is stepping back and going, okay, I have two natural inclinations. One is to be defensive. So as soon as you start to say, hey, Russ, that was an okay podcast, but here's the things I didn't like. I'm, I'm natural. The first thing I'm going to feel is defensive. No matter what, how much brain training I've done or whatever, I'm going to feel that feeling. And the other second thing might be that I'm going to think I'm right more than you're right. And so humility is recognizing that I have a propensity to do that, not denying it. And then being able to rise above it and feel those feelings. That's why I like this embracing the emotion. It's okay to feel defensive. It's okay to think you're right. Rise above it and go, maybe I'm not right. And maybe, maybe Sonny's right. Whether he's right or wrong, I should listen to him and really think about it. Cause that, I, I can only win by doing that. But what we tend to do is the opposite. Just dismiss what you're saying, dismiss you because I let the emotion override logic. But if I embrace the emotion, then I can evaluate and I can rise above and be able to accept your criticism or feedback, however you want to call it, and then decide whether I want to use it or not. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes that obviously has a direct link with who you're getting that feedback from, right? Or, you know... Um the characteristics of personality, the openness, the conscientiousness that we're trying to em like embrace and grow here, that is really also dependent on who is talking to you, who is your mentor that's guiding you with those feedback. And we often have a tendency to be naturally defensive and stubborn, but those barriers are easily overcome when you have the right person talking to you. I agree with that. And I think if I'm trying to help you, I want to be very mindful of doing it in a way that you like. But if you're coaching me, I, I want to break all those barriers down and I want you to give it to me any way you want. I, I don't want you to think, let me think, what's the best way to say this to Russ so it won't hurt his feelings? See what I'm saying? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, and you think about a, a whole team, a whole group of people in a company going, just give me the feedback. But that doesn't happen. And on, on teams either. And so think about how much power we're losing and information we're losing where we're all afraid to tell, give one another feedback. And so I always teach people, it doesn't matter if the person give you feedback is a person who doesn't care about you or does care about you. In fact, some people who don't care about you and don't like you can give you really great feedback. Mm -hmm. Right. So why would you dismiss that? Mm. And so you're just looking for the feedback any way you get it, you don't really care and you'll feel defensive no matter what. And you're overcoming that and you're looking at it for what it is. Whether you praise me or criticize me, it's still just information. It's either useful or not useful. Yeah, well said. So, you know, in your experience and when you've worked with athletic teams and when you've worked with businesses, has the responses been um, accepting in both ways or do athletes and teams are more receptive or businesses more receptive? I think it's pretty 
even. It's pretty equal. You know, when I first started doing this, I felt like athletes were a little more open because they're trying to get better. And sometimes I feel like in business, we're, we're so defensive. Uh-huh. Uh, but now I would say it's pretty even. And I think we've just got better at talking about it. Because really, when you think about it, when we start the whole thing with what's your life feel like, when people resonate with, hey, I'm not feeling great about my life. I lay in bed at night replaying stuff over and over again. I can't sleep. I have to read things two or three times because I can't focus my mind. When they realize that, hey, this is a common experience and this is the brain doing it, and there's something you can do about it, people are attracted to that. So you get pretty good feedback these days, you know. The first few years of you're doing anything, you're just not very good at presenting the information and all, all of that. So I would say it's pretty even. People are pretty receptive. And what has been like the most difficult part of this for you? It's hard. Uh, you know, my when I started doing, I was late 40s. So when you're late 40s, you've built up this career uh, and the income and the relationships and everything. And you just walk away from that. And you start over and you're used to having a support staff and all this stuff around you, uh, people paying for your travel and your hotel and everything else. And <laughs> so to start from scratch, uh, it, it, it was hard. Those three years were hard. If I didn't have this mental training, I couldn't have done it, you know, like using my own product. That was the hardest part. It's hard at this part in your life, I think, to start over when you have these financial obligations and kids and all of that. But that would be the hardest part. Hmm. And to the opposite side, what is what a success for you here with this company? Yeah, our goal is to change as many lives as we can. We come across on our website is very performance oriented, and we are. And we do think this helps with performance at work and at home and in sports. But that's not our main uh, objective. And so for me, it was life changing when I could change my thoughts and emotions and sleep better and all these sort of things. And we really want to give that gift to as many people as we can. That's really our objective is to change people's life experience, how they're experiencing life. And then we know that will go on to help them with their relationships, their jobs, everything else. So really that's our mission. And the way we're at least this point carrying it out is more through corporate and group and teamwork, as opposed to going to the consumer market, because that's just the best way for us to do it from a commercial standpoint right now. Well, um, Russ, this has been a really good talk. Um, I appreciate your time. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, I wish you the best of luck. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah, Sonny, thank you. I enjoyed it too. Appreciate you.